0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor, pronunciation guru, whose Italian is going to come in use today, and I'm already a little ashamed in advance of any pronunciations. I shall make Thea Leonard-Dutzi. Uh, Thea, I said I was going to dig up dirt on you, and I've not managed. So this is a confession of failure on my part, but I am going to redouble my efforts shortly.
0: I'm tempted to say you won't find anything, but that just sounds like a challenge, yeah. and I don't want you to take uh, challenge, that challenge up. Challenge
1: accepted. <laughs> um... And Italian, yeah, we'll get to the Italian pronunciation very shortly. If you're listening and you do not subscribe to the TLS, here is an offer for you. Just Google TLS subscriptions, click on the page and type POD1 into the offer code bit. That's POD1. You can get six issues for just £6. Well worth doing, in my view. And I should remind you that if you want to support this podcast... Uh, please do review us on iTunes. Just go to iTunes, click on TLS Voices, and you'll have the chance to review us. Coming up on this week's show, Anthony Burgess was born on February the 25th, 1917. So we are proudly commemorating the 100th anniversary of this great, voluble and entertaining author. Paul Howard has delving in the Burgess archive and covered a previously unpublished essay by Burgess on the Italian poet Belli, whom he admired and translated and featured in that novel Abba Abba which is also about Keats. Paul will join us to explain more. Uh, John Michael Lennon, a friend of this podcast, has reviewed South and West, a book of writing by Joan Didion in the 70s, telling of her experience touring the Deep South and in California. And we'll speak to the wonderful poet Simon Armitage, who will also read a new poem for us called Privet, which really is its lovely thing, a darkly brilliant account of a child cutting a hedge. It's a little more than that as well. Um... So let's go to Anthony Burgess, that great man of letters who would have been 100 this week. Martin Amis once called John Updike a grinning Santa of volubility, but he had nothing on the prodigious journalistic output of Burgess, who seemed in the second half of the 20th century to be writing on almost anything for almost everyone. Philip Larkin said back in the 1960s, and this comes from that DJ Taylor piece we discussed on the podcast back in June... This is what Larkin said. The whole of English lit at the moment is being written by Anthony Burgess. He reviews all the new books except those written by himself. He must be a kind of Batman of contemporary letters. And actually, I think the TLS did get Burgess wants to review a book he had indeed written himself. So Larkin was, if anything, understating the position. In any event, it's both a triumph and a surprise that Paul Howard has uncovered a piece of writing by Burgess that has until now not appeared In print, it's a short essay on the the little-known Roman poet, here we go, Thea, (laughs) Giuseppe Giacchino Belli. That was
0: brilliant. Yeah? (laughs) That was perfect.
1: Uh, Whom Burgess admired greatly. He called him the greatest poet of the 19th century, which is quite a claim, and fictionalised him in his novel about Keats called Abba Abba, which also contained translations of 70 of Belli's sonnets. Entitled Belli into English, the essay was designed for publication somewhere... And indeed, according to a note on the text by Burgess's wife, was actually phoned in to an undisclosed title, but it never seems actually to have appeared. Uh, Paul Howard joins us now. Uh, so, Paul, the, the Burgess piece, which is is a fantastically written piece, and it's sort of bursting with very quotable lines. Uh, it's devoted to the problems, the difficulties, and the charm, I suppose, of translating Belly. Um why was why, why was Burgess interested in Belli, do you think? And um, why was he such a sort of difficult customer to translate?
2: Um, I suppose Burgess had married an Italian, which always helped, so he'd gone to he'd gone to live in Italy and in Trastevere itself. So every day while he was walking home to Piazza Santa Cecilia, he would have seen the statue to Belli um in Piazza Gigi Belli, just on the other side of the Tiber. Um and there are various things going on at this time. So um, one of the publications that comes out is an anthology of Belly's um religious sonnets, um, sort of a couple of years before Burgess begins working on on, on Belli. So I think that's probably why why he's interested. More generally, um, he's a scurrilous sonneteer, he's subversive, he attacks authority. So it's easy to see why Burgess would have been interested in that.
1: Yeah, and I'm kind of interested in this, the, the, the what's at stake in terms of religious belief here, because you know Burgess is of course a, a Catholic, and it comes out in lots of his writing his Catholicism, and he's shocked by Belly's obscenity, but also kind of enlivened by it. And he actually says in the piece, which is a great line, "You can only genuinely blaspheme if you genuinely believe." Uh, so, what, yeah. what was going on, do you think, for Burgess as a Catholic as he as he dealt with this poet?
2: I mean, I think Burgess's own relationship to Catholicism is slightly uh, questionable. It's not not normal, if you want to put it like that. So, um, uh, well, Burgess is attracted to Belly because Belly is sort of sending up all the popes. Um, I suppose the one thing is that Belly is not really blaspheming against God ever. It's more a sense of church um, as the institution that he's taking down or trying to take down. And I think Burgess shares some of those um distinctions
1: and why is he so hard to translate he's writing in in a not not in a common dialect and is there something more than that because a lot of the pieces sort of burgess trying to discuss how how do you translate not using normal english or having to use normal english someone who's writing dialectical italian
2: yeah so i mean Bailey actually says that this roman language he's using is not um not a dialect he says it's not italian it's not even roman it's Romanesco, and with that suffix on the end, what he's trying to say is it's a kind of a cheap um, version of Rome and a sort of debased version of Roman, and an educated version of Roman. So he's trying to say that it's a sociolect. And he talks about um, Milanese poetry. But, of course, um, in Carlo Porter's poems that um, Burgess also mentions in the piece, everybody in Milan speak the dialect, so from a kind of um, low-level... Um, market stall person to somebody who's a member of the minor aristocracy. Whereas Belli perceives that in Rome at least it's the sort of plebeian underclass who are speaking this language. So it's a sociolect really that he's trying to he's trying to write in.
0: And Belly Belli was influenced uh substantially by by Porta, wasn't he? He went up to Milan and that was where he was sort of introduced to the literary possibilities of writing in a, a dialect or a sociolect.
2: Yeah, that's right. So he read Porta's um poems in in Milanese, but he always felt that there was something lacking because of this pan society um language. Um and he thought he could do better with um the kind of irreverent, often bawdy um speech of the, the underclass in, in in Rome. Of course in Rome slightly different because it's it's the place of the the papacy and so it's full at this point of um foreigners. Um and yeah, he says that the the real language of Rome is this uh, this language spoken by the people in Trastevere, the the kind of poor, um, often unemployed um, people that society's forgotten essentially. So that's where he gets this this inspiration from.
0: And that sort of links in with this this project of translating uh, Belly was for Burgess. I mean, it has a, it has a strong political dimension to it. It was a political challenge in a sense, wasn't it? Because. Uh, Burgess sort of turns the difficulties of translating Bedley into a reflection of how centralised his own country, Britain, has become.
2: He does, but I mean, um, in the choice of poems that he translated, so this this anthology by Gibellini on purely um, religious, uh, you know, episodes from the Bible, for example, um, he sort of hamstrings himself a little bit because there are more openly overt political attacks. There's one sonnet called La Vita da Cani, which, which is... Um, which means a sort of dog's life, um, where it's sort of ironical um, defense of what the Pope's supposed to do. And even Mazzini, Giuseppe Mazzini, the sort of main force for republicanism in Italy and revolutionary, uses this sonnet to send around to friends and supporters um, in manuscript form that's much more political than the ones that Burgess chooses. So it's slightly political, yeah, but more religious. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm interested in how he ends up with the translation because there's a great piece about how compromise was something which the English probably invented along with the steam engine and the water closet. Yeah. Um, so what compromises did he make? Because he's torn, isn't he? Because if he does a kind of duck type dialect in his translation, it will sound strange, but not in a very good way. But if you do very RP English, it doesn't really reflect the sociolect angle of of belly. So what compromise does Burgess get to? I mean, he claims
2: that he's given it a sort of Lancashire um, or Cheshire uh, tone, but really, that that's hardly perceptible. And even there are some. It's interesting in, in Manchester in the Burgess Foundation, there are some um, recordings of him reading these sonnets, it, and he it sounds as plum as anything. You know, he he toned down his own regional accent when he when he when he left Manchester and moved to to Banbury, and um, so there's not really any regionalism. Um, to be to be found in burgess's versions um, so they're very much standard english but it, at least he not he acknowledges this this problem in, in the piece that that the tls are running tomorrow
1: um he then says in the piece characteristically uh, in a piece that's uh, about his own translations um poetry is fundamentally untranslatable yeah uh, do you think he believe that is that a sense that you get from from reading this and reading his reaction to belly that this is something he's doing something that he kind of concedes at the beginning is fundamentally impossible
2: I mean impossible in the sense that you can't ever create or recreate everything that's in in the original that there are essential losses there but he obviously has a good time trying to recreate them um one interesting thing I should probably point out is that the translations aren't completely his own so um you get a fictionalized version of this in over the, the novel um what burgess actually does is use cribs by a um, an italian student so she was she was welsh actually a woman called susan roberts who's uh, studied in in Reading and then works for the burgesses in italy as an au pair and she produces these cribs um, which then he reworks into his own translations in the novel um he turns her into a uh, Susanna Roberti, this Italian um, figure who um, works for Alitalia in New York, so he, he's forever fictionalising.
0: Was his wife Liana not involved in the translations as well? I was reading her obituary, and, and it suggested that she she was.
2: Yeah, there are various places where that's suggested, but um, I've seen the actual cribs by Susan Roberts, so I know that she was the one who um, actually did the, the the cribs, and he, you know, reworked these into his own poems. Obviously she was Italian speaking, she was born in, in the Marche, she would have known about Belli. So um I think in Beard's Roman Women, um, she becomes the figure of Paola, um, the wife of obviously Burgess's alter ego. And he says that she helps him every day to translate a sonnet. So I'm sure she had some input, but um the the main input is from from Susan Roberts.
1: And we don't in the end know because Liana's involved in this this she uh, Burgess writes this piece. Uh, it appears to be phoned into a publication somewhere. Is there any yeah. theory about what what then happened to it, or what that publication was? Or, I mean, he's he's definitely trying to drum up publicity for for the for the novel for Abba
2: Abba, which comes out in seventy seven. And this is dated October the third, and it's written on uh, on the typescript in her hand, phoned through. It says so. Uh, we know it's obviously phoned through somewhere. Um, at this point, they're living in Monaco. Um, so they're obviously trying to send copy by the phone it might point to something like the new york times or the state the new statesman and um, sort of big publications that burgess was working for at the time but ultimately we don't know and um, uh, we're pretty sure it's not been published in full because she would usually write the, the place of publication on the on the typescript.
0: So it may well have been intended for us originally and we've only just come to publish it now. Which it, could well <laughs> which it could,
1: which it could well have well been. By TLS standards, uh, 40 <laughs> years is not terrible. <laughs> we've held on to pieces for longer, I, I, I fear. Uh, let's consider Burgess on the anniversary briefly. Uh, where do you think his repetition currently stands? Because I was trying to work out What's he going to be remembered for? There's obviously a Clockwork Orange, um, but probably the more I think about him, the more I kind of I'm drawn to Earthly Powers as the, sort of the, his his great novel. Where where do you think he sort of fits in 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 either popular culture or the pantheon now? What what do people think of? I mean,
2: him? I I think I started off the piece in the TLS um, quoting what he says about Lawrence on his. Um Centenary, and he says that Lawrence had never been popular in England, and I think he's probably talking about himself. So I think he he fears that he'll have a similar reputation as, as someone like Lawrence, sort of subversive and a little bit weird and not really read. And I would imagine that's how um, how he's seen out on the edges of of the canon.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, I think, because I guess because of the phenomenal success of *A Clockwork Orange*, people tend to think of him in yeah. in the light of that, and they forget how good a comic novel how he was a comic novelist yeah, and yeah. exactly and and I mean, um, was, earthly powers really brings that yeah. I mean that's a perfect example yeah. of that the first line
2: i mean his work on on language as well so a of there and the work on shakespeare um i mean he was so prolific so ridiculous prolific i think at one point even his publisher said um you know invent the the pseudonym of joseph kell because you won't be taken seriously if you publish more than one <laughs> one novel a year i think that's probably ultimately led to to some neglect.
1: I wonder whether he be, he'd be upset, I suspect, to think that he's only known for a clockwork orange. And I, I read some things, I don't know if this is true, but the film slightly troubled him in that he, he he kind of felt that was that was shaping his identity in the popular imagination in a way that he probably wouldn't want it to be.
2: Yeah, I think it was a double-edged sword, As double-edged sword, the clockwork orange. Um obviously it financed him being able to to move to Monaco. Um
0: to become a tax exile. <laughs>
2: Uh, I'm not sure he ever I think he always lived within within tax regulations maybe tax uh, avoidance rather than evasion uh, okay. um, <laughs> he also went there apparently because um, the Mafia had threatened to um, kidnap his son Andrea So um, I
0: read that. Is that so is that I mean who knows,
2: knows sure. Burgess you never know whether these things are true or, what, what was or the, close what, to the truth what was or was the story away the what,
1: do you know the story about this uh, why the Mafia would be interested in his son
2: well, I think he'd been asked to ghostwrite, if I remember right, I think he'd been asked to ghostwrite a biography of Lucky Luciano um, and refused or was threatened with having um, Paolo Andrea kidnapped if he did refuse. So it's um, he, strange, he says in um, You've Had Your Time that he moves from the centre of Rome out to Bracciano because he'd been threatened by the mafia. And then... Um, again, he uses the same excuse to, to move to Monaco. So who knows whether mm. this is true? I mean, it's something I'd like to look into further at some point.
1: Burgess in Italy would be a great book, and I hope that you yeah. write it one day, uh, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much for for, for for doing this for the paper. It's, it's so nice to have uh, some original Burgess uh, on this 100th anniversary, and thank you so much for joining us now. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Cheers, thank you. Bye. Before we get on to Burgess, as an Italian theater, Belli, Yes. How much does he mean to you?
0: Um, I'm not Roman. I'm very aware of him. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's 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 a he's a national poet. He's not just a Roman poet. And where does he
1: stand? Because Because Burgess calls him the greatest poet of the 19th century, and he says the only two good ones were effectively Keats and Belli. Mm. Uh, is he regarded?
0: He's incredibly highly regarded, yeah, still in Italy. And it's interesting because we were talking about Carlo Porta in, in Milan, and I would say Belli's fame eclipses his even though he learned so much from from the really? man i think i just i think it's fascinating and i can't help but sort of come back to the reasons that that burgess would have had for wanting to to translate something that's in dialect and i do uh, because he, he 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 seems to write and in the piece he writes so almost painfully about the absence of dialects in in in, in britain
1: yeah but then doesn't really I mean, that's interesting that Typically of him, he then doesn't really do anything about
0: well, it. Well, he su- he suggests very much that it's he 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 objects to the centralisation um, of of all of Britain, but also but of especially of the language and the way it was written down. And so Chaucer sort of becomes this figure of the establishment yeah. who's sort of stomped. Uh, around the rest of the country uh, banishing uh, written dialect. It feels like he's hankering for another way of expressing himself, a way that is outside of...
1: Which he kind of recognises he can't do because he's a great bit, and he talks about um, translating a bit of it, which in Standingly English goes, Jesus Christ, said Martha, how can anyone put up <laughs> any more with Mary Magdalene? And he says, but the dialectical flavour is lost. The Queen of England herself could recite it. I tried this. Martha said, Christ, I'm full reet scupper with money, though. <laughs> and... The- <laughs> And, you, and the notion that, uh, that that was kind of considered by Burgess as thank God he didn't put, pu- can you imagine 70 sonnets? <laughs>
0: well, he says himself, one can maybe imagine reading it in a pub in Manchester and Liverpool, but even then it wouldn't be well received.
1: Yeah, the only answer was compromise, he then concluded. Very um, British. Very British indeed. <laughs> Let us move on, Theo. What is next?
0: Didion, Joan Didion.
1: There we go. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at
3: UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.
0: Writing in The Atlantic a couple of years ago, Megan Down pointed out how, of all the words used to describe Joan Didion, among them introverted and solipsistic, and no doubt we'll come back to that later, it's probably cool that sticks most. Biography has a lot to do with it. Didion was born in 1934 into a sun-bleached, privileged corner of California, to a father in the military and a mother who spent most of her time planning tea parties. She did, though, give the young Joan, a mousy and introspective child prone to nosebleeds, her first notebook perhaps simply to keep her out of the way. English at Berkeley followed, and then a post at Vogue in New York where she'd commission copy by day and write mostly fiction by night. Then came essays and collections with titles like Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which epitomises the style of literary journalism that Didion was then honing. She had a Corvette, split her time between Hollywood, New York and Honolulu, had dinner with filmmakers, actors and writers... But there remained, in spite of this coolness, uh, an awkwardness. Her writing hinged on detached observations of an American society and American dreams that were just beginning to unravel. She wrote about frazzled hippies, John Wayne, and backwater western towns. She wrote too about self-respect, morality, the pursuit of happiness, as well as political pieces about Ronald Reagan's vague language or American military presence in El Salvador. A new book, South and West, follows in this vein. It's a slim volume with two pieces of work from the 1970s. And J. Michael Lennon, who has uh, reviewed the book for us this week, joins us on the phone from New York now. Mike, what do we what do we get in South and
4: West? Uh, well, uh, you get something that's been uh, brought back from the Deep Archive. Uh, she wrote this, you know, close to the first piece, close to 50 years ago. Uh, when she was traveling through the, the Southwest with her, uh, her, her late husband, John Gregory Dunn. And so for whatever reasons, and you know, I can offer some hypotheses, uh, her publisher decided and she decided that they were going to resurrect this. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with the political situation in the United States today.
0: Tell us a bit about her, her credentials as a, as a political writer then.
4: Uh, she has great credentials as a political writer. I mean, she's been writing about the American scene for a long time. She started out writing, always wanted to be a novelist, but um, the New York Review of Books and uh, the New Yorker and other places convinced her uh, that she should be writing more political commentary. And that's when she started really good into it during the Reagan years, writing about Iran-Contra, going to Salvador. Um, she continue, She's continued in that vein ever since. Uh, writing about the country as a whole, looking at California in the West, certainly is something that's always been on her mind. Uh, but uh, being a political writer is, you know, and she doesn't come out of political uh, her political writing the way, let's say, a reporter for the Washington Post uh, would come about it. Uh, she doesn't uh, do a lot of interviews. She just she follows her own nose and she writes. She really writes about her own instincts, her feeling of dread. Uh, the prickly dread that she feels uh, when she uh, uh, gives all these wonderful sensuous descriptions, for example, of what what it's like to be in El Salvador, so, in El Salvador back in those years, where walking down the street you could hear the you could hear the the, the people. Clicking their uh, the safeties off their off their guns. That's the kind of detail that Joan Didion is great at. She's going to talk about the feel and the pulse of things.
1: So she's in the South, which is the the point of the uh, of the first piece in this. And is is the idea is your view, Mike, what you're saying here is that she's writing about impoverished, angry people who feel let down by the country as a whole, feel sort of. Uh, torn, and therefore, these are the Trumpian voters. This is what is this? What this why this is coming out? This is a yet a, a way of trying to explain the Trump phenomenon.
4: Precisely, and the introduction by Nathaniel Rich makes that very clear. It was written after the election because he talks about the election of a new president. It's very clear he's talking about Trump. The interesting thing about the book is that you know we've been told for a long time in the United States that the old South has disappeared, that it was gone, it was fading away the big cities like Atlanta and Birmingham were now wide open and very accepting and very much like cities in the North. But um, what we've learned in the election is that some of the Old South, the narrower views of people, the biased views of people still persist. They're still there. And Joan or her editor or somebody said, you know, Joan, the stuff you wrote about these people in in the 70s is still true. Let's get that book out there, put an introduction on it, and let's say, look, this this is what happened in America. These people are still angry, they're still left out, and they voted for Donald Trump.
1: And is that shabby thing to do? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, what, what the ethics of this? Is this cashing in on the Trump phenomenon, or is this actually a useful way of thinking about that phenomenon?
4: I think it's a useful way of thinking about it. Uh, I don't think she's cashing. I mean, she's 82 years old. She's very frail. I don't think she's written much new in the last several years. Uh, you know, ever since uh, she wrote these memoirs Blue about Knights. the death of her daughter yeah. and the death of her husband. She hasn't really written much at all. And all reports seem to be that, you know, she's not in great shape. So this is something that came from the vaults. And it came so she could, she wanted to weigh in on what has happened in America. She thought this was the most appropriate way to do it.
0: Should we should we feel a little uneasy about a book that showcases un, unfinished, in, aborted work by a writer who is so she's so famously determined to, to get it right each sentence. And she had, you know, all of her writing rituals and she was so assiduous in her attention to the rhythm of each sentence.
4: Well, yes, you, you, there is. A, I mean, I had a feeling of uneasiness when I was reading it, but, you know, her sentences are so perfect. Uh, there, are, there are a few people, living writers, who pay uh, more attention to the way a sentence unfolds, uh, the sensuous way that they unfold. She, uh, she, uh, her sentences are still so adroit and piercing that, um, you know, I don't really care. It's the writing is so damn good that you can't overlook it, and you you feel that she has tapped into. Uh, her, her writing of 46 years ago is still very, very appropriate for describing that part of the country.
0: Let's talk just a little bit more broadly then about Didion's persona and the uses she puts it to. I mean, because it's, it's one that she, she crafted with with great care. Do we get some new insights here? There's, I think, the second essay in particular sounds like we might.
4: No, I don't think you get anything really new here. I mean, this sounds like the Joan Didion of the White Album and I'm slouching toward Bethlehem. I and mean, it comes out of that era. It doesn't have as much overt political commentary, as the stuff that came later when she wrote about Salvador or Iran Contra, it's it's early vid it's early diddian or uh, Didion at her at her peak, you might say, when she really found her true voice in slouching toward Bethlehem in the White Album. It's it's from that period, and um, you know some 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 prose is uh, you know deathless. Uh, I you know if you travel in the in the United States and you go to small towns in Arkansas and so forth, they don't much look, look different than they did forty or fifty years ago.
1: Who are the literary journalists that, that have come after Joan Didion? Because this seventies, sixties and seventies, you know, bit of gonzo journalism and and literary journalism is that a tradition that's being maintained today? Have, has she shaped the any authors that have come after her? Do you think?
4: Uh, I think that 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 the writers like um. Don DeLillo, Michael Chabon, even Dave Eggers, to some extent, have been uh, affected by Joan Didion and that whole gang of people. I mean, Gay Talese, who's still around, too, and Mailer and Tom Wolfe. That group of writers had an enormous influence on American journalism and on American literature. Uh, They were putting the writer on the stage of the story. Uh, they were writing about their own reactions to events that had ne- had never really been done exactly that way. But they really had it together in the sixties, seventies, and into the eighties, and their influence is undiminished. It goes on. It's a very
1: American form, isn't it? I'm conscious that journalists in in this country have a and, you know journalists. This is not pure journalism, but the idea of the journalist yep. as writer. You know, where the the yep. most important thing is your ability as a writer rather than the quality of. The story is your ability to write beautifully about your experience.
4: It is. It is very American. It's very American. You know, you go back to the perception that Mailer had that the things that were happening in the country were too important to be left to mere journalists. That you needed somebody who had a sense of style, who had a, a sense of a larger context, and weren't just weren't just following the breaking news that was coming in, but putting it in a larger picture, and doing so by consulting their own sensibility, and um, that has not stopped in the United States. It, the new journalism continues to roll on um there's resistance to us of course there always has been but i don't think it's going to go away i, I think it made a permanent change in the way uh we observe events
0: mm. and now more than ever presumably is, is is again it's you know it's a it's a right time to to encourage it's that kind right, of writing
4: that's right it is the right time for this kind of writing uh there's a hunger for it um and I think somebody got some really good ideas over there at her publisher. And where exactly the idea come from, I'd love to know. But they said, you know, this speaks to the time. It's it was written long ago, but it's the voice here uh, has transcended that that time gap and and um, can tell us. I mean, some of the images, which, the imagery that she has, that's it's the wonderful thing about this book is the imagery of the South of what it's like. Every river is muddy. Every river is slow. Uh, the same kind of restaurants, the same kind of architecture in the town. Um, some of it charming, uh, no doubt, and wonderful. I mean, it's not like the South is a is a, is a horrible place entirely, not at all. But it's the that obsessive sense of pride and um, that she talks about in in her piece. You know that these these people have been. Have been worrying the bone of class and legacy and race for so long, and they just can't get off the dime. They can't change, and that's that's the obsessiveness I think that forms the spine of this book.
0: And I guess the 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 classic Didion kind of style is is these gentle but very clear and strong symbols. Patty Hearst, for example, she's a she's a, a recurring theme almost for, for Didion, and she comes to kind of symbolize. Something about about the West and about America more more broadly.
4: Yes, exactly. The Patty and there's only a little bit about Patty Hearst at the end, uh, but it's beautifully beautifully observed. I mean, this this notion of her observing herself, looking out the window from the Great Hotel of Mark Hopkins down through uh, through the air into the window of the apartment where Patty Hearst lived. You know, so she's watching herself watch Patty Hearst. Sitting there playing this record over and over again, trying to understand the naivete of Patty Hearst and uh, the privileged way that she was raised, and and you know, and you know, she did some time in jail, but she's uh, she's a free person today. And it was a symbol of all the things that can go wrong uh, with the radicalism, uh, you know, because because you know, she's there's a there's a real streak of conservatism in in Joan Didion, uh, a deep deep streak of conservatism. She did not approve of of the of the of the hippies, she did not approve of Hayde Ashbury. She did not approve of Patty Hurst. These these were people that they were they were losing something. So you know, one part of her yearns for the past and believes in it. Uh, but the past that she that she appreciates most is the past in California, uh, which she finds to be radically different. There's a the contrast. There's a drawn contrast throughout the book between uh, California and the West of the United States and the way people think there, and then the way that people think in the South and the in the Upper Midwest.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a fact, I mean, I think the one thing that, Mike, talking to, to 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 you and reading the piece, I think people will maybe go back and reread some Joan Didion because, um, it it it's such an easy read, isn't it? It's such a, it's it's so brilliantly done that it, it it it's it's a very it's a very easy.
0: It's so, as deep as you want it to be, yeah. and it's. I would say it's infinitely, infinitely so. But, um, it's just yes, it's beautiful to read and also resonates, um, long after She has read
4: sentences. It. She has sentences that will make your teeth ache. Yeah, <laughs> um,
0: they're,
4: they're just they're just so sharply observed and they're honed and they're carefully. And yet, uh, you know, her voice is a casual voice. It isn't. A, it isn't a formal voice.
5: Yeah.
4: Uh, it's. It's. Uh, there's a lot of images strung together. She leaves out a lot of verbs sometimes, just to pop her images up there. Uh, you know, it's almost like sitting sitting with somebody very quiet in a restaurant and hearing them dissect the sensibility of a time and a place, you know, really capturing the ethos of it and doing it with, you know, words that are chosen. I mean, it, it's the old, uh, you know, somebody said Hemingway's prose is like, you know, uh, stones in a very clear a very clear running brook, yeah. and that metaphor has been used for her as well.
0: And and if that doesn't make people want to go back and read Joan Didion, I don't I don't know what will.
1: Uh, Mike, um, Mike, thank you so much. That's a, it's a great pleasure talking to you, as ever, and thank you for doing this piece for us.
4: Been my pleasure. Take care.
1: Great um, stuff. Bye. You really love Joan Didion. I do.
0: I mean, that was that was difficult for me because I could just I could talk about her all day.
1: <laughs> I, love very gen-
0: to I love the genre.
1: Myself. I love the genre. I like the stuff I've read of hers, but but the genre particularly, I do mm. think that. Yeah, Truman Capote is in this genre yeah. as well, you know, where someone brings literary sensibilities right up against reality mm. is in some ways a kind of perfect prose, isn't it? Because it's something real and meaningful and important and actual. Yeah. And yet it's, it's conveyed in a way.
0: That- it's thought through yeah. and beautiful and maps onto so many different things. My favourite kind of writing is this kind of writing that makes connections between things yeah. and it doesn't make them really obviously. It sort of suggests them to you. She's a master of of, of showing rather than telling. And, you know, you see, you see that in in how heavily she was influenced by Hemingway and, 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 and the quality of the writing. And I can't help but as well, you, there's this slight nostalgia that tinges her writing for me. And it's a nostalgia that she conveys beautifully, but also applies to her writing for for a time when writers could just, you know, take off on a, a notion of a notion and, you yeah. know, see what happens, jump in a car and yeah. head down to New Orleans and, and see what and just you want to speak it. to a reptile farmer yeah, or yeah. like someone pumping gas and yeah. and see what comes of it. And I just I I miss that. I don't you know I don't know the extent to which it really existed. But or, or I think it I think it did, but now it, it does. The econ- I think
1: the economics of economics of that sort of writing are, are are probably gone but actually Kaposi uses the same metaphor he talks about pebbles in a running brook he talks about writing as cool and clear as a brook mm. again it's the same idea of underwriting kind of if if possible which you get f- from Hemingway through this type of journalism which is you use be- beautiful metaphors but it's not ornate this mm. it's got kind of the thud of reality yeah. behind it and I think that's fantastic. Very American, and it it isn't a very—it's American as jazz, kind of. It's that Mm. sort of. As soon as you read this type of journalism, you Mm. know you're in America. I think you probably are in America in the '60s or '70s or '80s, and it still happens now. That's right. But no, well, we'll, we'll, tell what we should do. theo, we should get you writing about the whole of the Didion. Over. Well, it's, Would it's, you do it's that? Inter-
0: it's interesting. I'm not going on record. No, but well, you
1: could do that. You, <laughs> can, you could do a reappraisal of all of Did You?
0: It's, inter- it's interesting because people never really talk about the fiction, and there are so many overlaps yeah. between, between the nonfiction and the fiction. And, you know, she started out writing fiction, and, and some of her her novels y- you see themes and, and echoes be- between, between i smell a piece coming okay yeah, ah. it has to be long
1: sort of three do you know what i mean we have one of those pieces where you can Yeah, actually give th- me
0: seven pages Yeah, done.
1: <laughs> deal has been done uh before we hear from Simon, uh, Theo and i would like to thank uh j michael lennon and paul howard and let me remind you subscribe to this podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcast we're going to be back every week with thoughts on what's in the TLS and other interesting cultural and artistic issues. This week's paper is now on sale with a special section on Jewish identity, pieces on the amazing Jewish historians, Ernst Kantorowicz, who, it's fascinating, I never heard of him, he's fired from a German university for being Jewish, and fired from an American university for not condemning communists. And his great line in response to that was, I've killed communists, but I'm not... (laughs) going to condemn them for you. It's an amazing story. The other historian is Saul Friedlander. We also have a piece uh, by Natasha Lehrer on memoirs from the ghettos. Elsewhere, we have Ira Bashkow on some Victorian racist fraudulent anthropologists, if you could imagine such a thing. Ada Calhoun on Buildings in 30s New York, Violet Hudson on the Beastly Evelyn War, and two big pieces on David Hockney, whose exhibition we featured, was it last week? I want to say uh, last week. Week, before, week so. before last week's podcast. If you've missed that, do catch up with that. We sent Annavo to the exhibition Uh, she she
0: wanted to go i should say it's not like we forced her (laughs) i think you can tell that when you listen to it as well
1: she's not there under protest uh you can visit our website the tlscouk to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from tls writers including the great ian sanson one of my favorite tls writers on how writers cope with stressful families Apostolos Doxiadis on comic books for adults and we have a graphic novel special of the TLS coming up in April so this is a kind of preview of that are you a graphic novel person Thea?
0: Um, Only I mean, no, but only through ignorance.
1: Yeah, you're not, you're not prejudiced against. No, I'm the not. Form. I have nothing against them. Me it just neither. hasn't happened.
0: No, I'd like. So I'd, I look forward to it happening. I'm
1: kind of going to use this edition to <laughs> teach myself about it. It's coming up in <laughs> April. We've also got the cultural life of Brazil there on the site by Nicole Froyo. Uh Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and review us on iTunes, as I said. And next week we're going to be looking there at lots and lots of music, including. New York Disco from the 1980s, which may or may not have a headline based on Staying Alive by the Bee Gees, and The Literary Sensibilities of the Jam.
0: That I am very much looking forward to. Are you to. a The
1: Jam person? Uh, Yes. Yes?
0: Yes. And Paul Weller.
1: It's a bit before our time though, isn't it?
0: So much is. Yeah, it
1: doesn't stop us. <laughs> Uh, but first, a wonderful poem to say that We This week we published Privet by Simon Armitage. It's a gloriously unsettling and kind of macabre poem about, on the face of it, a child cutting a hedge. Uh, it's, a, it's just a lovely, lovely thing. Uh, Simon Armitage uh, joins us now. Simon, how are you doing? I'm
5: very well, thank you. Uh,
1: before we get to that, can we talk briefly about your translations of the Gawain poet? Sure, yeah. Um, we reviewed in the paper last week your version of Pearl, which is a a beautiful and mystical poem, rather removed from modern life, which you have made sort of living, inclusive, and readable, is uh, the phrase you've used. What was it like um, translating a poem like *The Pearl*? And, and how because you a few years ago you translated *Gawain and the Green Knight*, who, who, and the author is the same person, perhaps. Uh, what, was, what was it like translating *The Pearl*?
5: Well, they're slightly different beasts, really. I, I, I think uh, I could have more verbal fun with um with Gawain and I, I took a few more liberties with the with the translation. That the poem lends itself to that. It's uh you know it's it's carousing and it's jolly and it's strange and it's it's full of characters as well. Um Pearl in some ways is much more uh prayer like uh it's much more sensitive and the, the language in it is, is much calmer. So I think I took my Lead from those signals, and I, I think the the translation of, of Pearl is probably uh, much for, much more faithful in in all in all kinds of uh, of ways. Um, but the, the the main thing was was having to make a, de- a decision about what to do with the rhyme scheme. It operates through a a very precise rhyme scheme, and I I just realised at an early stage, well, probably through a little bit of trial and error, that I needed to. To ditch that because um, it was just um, sort of wrangling the the, the, the sentences that, that preceded it in, in the wrong in the wrong direction. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's a poem of bereavement and, and consolation, and uh, you know, f- from the point of view of uh, somebody who seems like a father figure who appears to have lost a child. So it's it's quite a troubling poem to. To work on, especially if you are the you know the father of of one child who is a, a daughter, which which I am.
1: In, in some ways, it's, it's rather magnificent that someone is speaking to you across how it was seven hundred years or, or or whatever it is. But did you find that connection that that it was quite affecting?
5: I really did, actually. Um, particularly the you know the more that I, I I pressed on with it. I mean, there's there's something quite monastic really about about working on a a poem like that and i often felt uh, as if i had to sort of enclose myself and um you know shut the world out to to get on with it and put myself in a a very particular frame of mind but i think as I, i pressed on with the poem you know the idea kept coming back to me of the extent to which this was um autobiographical you know the question of whether or not the author of that poem was writing about his own loss, and um, when those thoughts enter your mind, you you realise you know the the obligations that that go along with it, and I think to a certain extent a a sense of intrusion, um, but also the idea that you know this is a, a, a an animated and, and and living piece of writing. I I, I suppose I felt. You know, responsible to it um, in in that re- in that respect. You've um, you've just caught me at a good moment actually, because I just heard about an hour ago that it's won the the PEN um, International Poetry Translation Prize.
1: So yeah, that's can, very opportune that you... Oh, uh, well, it, it makes it even more of a privilege to be speaking to you, Simon. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you think it's by the same poet? Because uh, they're on the same manuscripts, the, the Gawain, uh, Gawain and the Green Knight are, and, and Pearl, but they are dissimilar, as you say, in tone mm. uh, and structure. But you've you've kind of lived in the skin of both of them, so you're probably more qualified than anyone to say. Do they feel like they've come from the same hand?
5: Well, I'm fairly qualified. I'm, I'm certainly less qualified than, you know, a lot of other people who devoted their... Entire lives and careers to, to you know the little nuances of, of
1: of language in these things. Uh, we don't believe um, in experts anymore in this country, so it's okay. Oh well, okay. That's,
5: that's, that's excellent then. <laughs> um, um, I suppose I do. I mean, there, there are little ticks and, and trademarks that, that that seem to carry across not just those two poems, but the other two poems in in the manuscripts as well. And um, you know, I don't think we should be too surprised that they that they differ. I mean, if you, if you look at the that the, the canvas of of most writers work uh, you know you you can find enough range there uh to um you know to 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 make that case so yeah i i, I definitely felt in the end that i was i was working uh with either the same poet or somebody who was very good at imitating the other one
1: uh, let's talk about privet um because um, it's a great thing. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thea and I were talking about it before we, we we came on air. It's it's such a it's such a poem suggestive of childhood and what it's like uh, to to be delving in uh, in a sort of a shed filled with chemicals and sharp tools and and shadows and spiders. Uh, what was the genesis uh, of it?
5: I think in some ways I was trying to write a poem about um, you know adventure and exploration, but um you know in a domestic setting and into internal rather than external world so one of those adventures is into that terrible place the cellar (laughs) um and then a a, a, an exploration i suppose into the into the hedge itself which which is a boundary and i've i've always felt that um you know margins and boundaries and borders are good places for for poems to to exist and to and to operate so in in the poem it's a it's a dividing line between you know the 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 sort of cultivated garden and and the the wild uh, untamed moor on the other side and i i think at the end of the poem it becomes um a, a sort of shared boundary between between me and my my dad you know as he as he comes along afterwards and and lays me on top of it and just just for that moment we we have uh a kind of, a kind of overlapped interest uh in this in this thing it's it, it's also tapping into you know some very straightforward ideas of you know when i was younger being given chores yeah uh of, for, for you know for misdemeanors um, which at the time I you know resented greatly, but now you know as a, as a father in my own right I, I see the sense of that.
1: <laughs> I remember, like, I remember uh, gardening being a punishment actually it's a funny thing that gardening you know gardening is a is a punishment to a child. Well I
0: like, I like the gentle positioning of, of of your speaker as a kind of a Saint Sebastian, although mercifully the, the arrows are scattered around his feet rather than in his um, body.
1: Well, well Simon, thank you so much for 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 letting us publish it and thank you so much for joining us now. It's a pleasure, thank you. Great pleasure, thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you. Bye. Uh,
1: So we're going to end on this. Here it is, Privet by Simon Armitage. Uh, Until next week when we'll be wearing our best disco pants from (laughs) Thea and from me, goodbye. Privet. Because
6: I'd done wrong, I was sent to hell. Down black steps to the airless tombs of mothball contraptions and broken tools. Piled on a shelf, every daffodil bulb was an animal skull or shrunken head, every drawer a seed tray of mildew and rust. In its alcove shrine, a bottle of meth stood corked and purple like a pickled saint. I inched ahead, pushed the door of the furthest crypt, where starlight broke in through shuttered vents, and there were the shears, balanced on two nails, Hanging cruciform on the whitewashed wall. And because I'd done wrong, I was sent to the end of the garden to cut the hedge, that dividing line between moor and lawn, gone haywire that summer, all stem and stalk where there should have been contour and form. The shears were a crude beast, lumpen pre war, rolling pin handles on Viking swords an oiled rivet that rolled like a slow eye, jaws that opened to the tips of its wings, then closed with an executioner's lisp. I snipped and prodded at first, pecked at strands, then cropped and hacked, watching spiders scuttle for tunnels and bolt holes of woven silk, and found further in an abandoned nest like a begging bowl or a pauper's wreath till two hours on and the hedge stood scalped and fleeced, raw-looking, stripped of its green, my hands blistered, my feet in a litter of broken arrows and arrowhead leaves. He came from the house to inspect the work, didn't speak, ran his eye over the levelled crown and shorn flanks, then for no reason except For the sense that comes from doing a thing for its own sake, He lifted me up in his arms and laid me down on the top of the hedge, Just lowered me onto that bed of twigs, And I floated there, cushioned and buoyed by a million matchwood fingertips, Held by nothing but needling spokes and spikes, Released
4: to the universe, buried in sky,